Section 11, Vietnam, the Advisory Years to 1965, by Robert Futrell and Martin Blumenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Chapter 11, Air Policy. Too Cautious? During a conversation with President Kennedy in November 1961, Secretary of Defense McNamara had volunteered to look after the Vietnam War. To do this, he set up monthly conferences in Hawaii or Saigon. There, he and a Joint Chiefs of Staff member, usually the chairman, met with the Commander-in-Chief, Pacific Command, the Ambassador to Vietnam, and various component and unified commanders. The conferees discussed problems, courses of action, and progress. They traded views, reports, and briefings, and kept each other current on events in Southeast Asia and in Washington. Secretary McNamara often settled things on the spot, accepting or rejecting subordinate suggestions. A case in point was the first Secretary of Defense conference held on December 16, 1961, in Hawaii. Mr. McNamara opened the meeting by stressing that the President did not desire to introduce American combat troops openly into Vietnam at that time. The secretary conveyed his concern over the danger of alienating the Vietnamese people by careless bombing. The army has a particularly important role to play, he said. While naval and air support operations are desirable, they won't be too effective, and we should not think they will win the war. McNamara wanted the C-123s in Vietnam used not for taxi service, but for tactical airlift in support of the combat effort, to include drops of material and of Vietnamese troops. His one objective in Vietnam was to, quote, to win this battle. A chief order of business was the SYNCPAC plan to guide the Vietnamese armed forces in a field campaign against the insurgents. The operations projected were in terms of task forces. Three or four battalions of infantry with supporting artillery and logistic units would attack Viet Cong bases, cut lines of communication, and clear and hold ground gained. No one knew what resources President Diem would give to this program. If Diem refused to take American advice, JCS Chairman Lemnitzer pointed out the United States would be in a bad fix. Mr. McNamara brushed this aside and brusquely told his followers to get on with their jobs. General O'Donnell, PACAF Commander-in-Chief, was impressed with McNamara's extremely strong statements of American determination to keep Vietnam from falling to the Communists. But it soon became evident to him that strong talk did not necessarily mean strong action. The United States had chosen a prudent, perhaps too prudent, course and was accenting ground rather than air action. O'Donnell said that he personally deplored over-control from the Washington level, but as a soldier would comply with the spirit of the policy to be ultra-cautious. Admiral Felt, SYNCPAC, likewise believed that policies curbing air power were scarcely in the best American interest. General LeMay, Air Force Chief, was also impatient with, quote, our own military rules to handicap ourselves, end quote. He later reminisced, if Khrushchev had been running it, the war, he couldn't have done better as far as handicapping us by what we did to ourselves all through the thing from start to finish. In January 1962, U.S. Air Force planners felt sure they had solved the problem of creating a clear, realistic, jointly agreed concept for the elimination of Viet Cong influence. Their idea called for a quick reaction force of Vietnamese airborne troops, lifted and supported by U.S. or Vietnamese transport and strike aircraft. All would respond to radio calls from villages under communist attack, thus supplying the missing ingredient of truly effective action in South Vietnam. This simple and direct reaction to overt enemy assaults on villages would entail nine Vietnamese battalions of paratroopers, 10 C-123s, 40 T-28s, and 80 H-34 helicopters. Split among several locations, the force would be on 24-hour alert, quick to react to calls for help from communications teams and villages. Since Farmgate was to take part in the program, precise targeting was a must, 
Guerrilla warfare blurred distinctions. The insurgents disguised themselves as civilians, found shelter among the populace, and depended on innocent inhabitants for food and other items. President Diem emphatically insisted that his airmen exercise utmost care to avoid angering the people by injuring innocents. Carelessness during an airstrike could lead to a prison sentence. 13th Air Force asked PACAF to lay down rules of engagement for Farmgate, and the request was referred to SINCPAC for resolution. Admiral Felt stressed caution. The French Foreign Legion in Indochina had tried to work free of restraints hamstringing operations on the basis that the native people knew that innocent and guilty would suffer alike if they harbored Viet Minh members. The French command had rejected this view, and, quote, more temperate policies for using air power prevailed, although many tragic errors in target designation continued to be made until the end of the war, end quote. According to Felt, a realistic policy pivoted on good air-ground communications and on being as careful as possible when shooting things up around friendly forces. Farmgate bombs hit a Cambodian village by accident on January 21, 1962, killing several civilians. The incident raised at the highest level of the U.S. government the question of how to select targets without imperiling innocent people. To guide the discussion expected of the next conference attended by the Secretary of Defense, PACAF offered, We must exercise the greatest possible control and discretion to assure that we achieve our objectives without undue or unnecessary alienation of the civilian populace. If we are to avoid the imposition of highly limiting controls on the application of Farmgate, we must make every effort to avoid another incident and, in addition, demonstrate the effectiveness of our control and ability to discriminate in the selection and designation of targets as well as the conduct of airstrikes. At the February conference, General Anthus depicted targeting and control of airstrikes as oriented to protect the lives and property of friendly civilians. He said that all ground force requests for close air support or interdiction were carefully verified as justifiable before being met. Air Force personnel scrutinized every strike request and had recently denied two. Once a daylight strike was approved, a Vietnamese forward air controller directed it. Anthus knew of no attacks on friendly people. Defense Secretary McNamara answered the second Advon commander by spelling out guidelines. Air Force personnel were not to engage in strikes on Cambodian territory. They were to balance risk against gain. For example, a mission was probably unacceptable if eight Americans were training a single Vietnamese, or if there was a chance of killing innocent people to get a few Viet Cong. By reason of this policy, more than half of the T-28s flying strike missions in 1962 returned to the base with unused ordnance. One U.S. Air Force forward controller had seen Vietnamese troops after an engagement, quote, put 60 artillery rounds into a village for no apparent reason and kill women and children, end quote. Yet he knew of no instance when we indiscriminately went into any area and just for the heck of it bombed and strafed. In contrast, armed helicopters seemed almost free of the rules of engagement. These craft had no rigid target selection, no radar control for target location, and no forward air controllers to monitor their firing. During the night of March 1st, 1962, the Viet Cong stormed an outpost about 30 miles north of Saigon. The call for help flashed to the Air Operations Center, thence to Farmgate. An SC-47 flare ship and two T-28s carrying napalm rockets and a 50 cal machine gun scrambled with radar at Tansan Nut vectoring them to the scene. Under the light of the blossoming flares, the T-28s pummeled the enemy. He broke off the assault and the outpost held. Five communist bodies were found the following day, along with evidence that more had been wounded. On March 3rd, 11 Corps asked for an immediate strike on a Viet Cong meeting near a village 105 miles northeast of Saigon. After clearance by field command, the Air Operations Center sent one B-26 and two AD-6s, loaded with napalm, fragmentation bombs, rockets, 50-cal machine guns, and 20-millimeter cannon. The aircraft arrived to find the Viet Cong in the midst of a training exercise. The strike killed 12. At times, coordination failures hurt operations. 
On March 2nd, for example, 11 U.S. Army helicopters lifted and landed four Ranger companies, a reconnaissance company, and a platoon of 105mm howitzers in the Vinh Binh area to encircle a Viet Cong village. The Vietnamese and Farmgate gave air cover with two T-28s and two L-19s, but the ground units were in the wrong places, and air-ground communications were absent. Although the two strike aircraft and two liaison planes were overhead and available, they could deliver no supporting fire. The ground troops killed one Viet Cong and captured 33 suspects. While lapses in coordination and communications marred some operations, results in general infused mild optimism. On March 4th, a Vietnamese L-19 serving with an army task force spied a company of Viet Cong, 50 to 70 men. They were situated near the bend of a river about 30 miles northeast of Tan Son Nut. Vietnamese AD-6s scrambled within 15 minutes, armed solely with 20mm cannons since the planes were forbidden to carry bombs. Asked to assist, Farmgate flew a series of strikes. Vietnamese reports the next day claimed 50 to 60 Viet Cong dead. A U.S. advisor put the figure at 25. As MAAG told Defense Secretary McNamara on February 19, 1962, South Vietnam had earlier been described as a country going down a steep slope to disaster. We can't say that the direction has been reversed, but for the moment the slope has leveled out a bit. For Farmgate personnel, the slope still seemed to be downhill. Their tasks were largely routine, and morale sagged. Being specially chosen, highly motivated survivors of rigorous training and selection, they expected to work with friendly guerrillas fighting behind enemy lines. But apart from a few challenging special forces missions, they performed close air support, airlift, medical evacuation, and psychological warfare. Not at all what they had volunteered to do. The rules of engagement stymied these men carry Vietnamese insignia and a Vietnamese airman, and do nothing that the Vietnamese Air Force can do itself. A chance to tackle something more exacting in psychological warfare had arisen in December 1961. Because certain areas controlled by the Viet Cong were open only to counter-propaganda by air, 2nd Advon turned to Farmgate for testing loudspeaker and leaflet operations. Targets embraced the town of Ban Mi Thuat, Pliku, and Kantum, along with the villages of Pole Klang and Pole Krong. Farmgate planes carried out the broadcast and leaflet flights. To stave off starvation, Pole Krong, the aircraft dropped rice and salt. Brigadier General Edward G. Lansdale, U.S. Air Force counterinsurgency specialist, questioned the rationale of the tests. He suggested that unless technical experts knew precisely what they wished to achieve, probably nothing could be accomplished. On January 30, 1962, 2nd Advon put in for three officers, two specialists, and one clerk all well-versed in military, political, economic, psychological aspects of this type of warfare. They would develop, test, and conduct operations in the ideal environment of South Vietnam. Missions suggested were dropping leaflets, food, and clothing. Unfortunately, no psychological warfare specialists were on hand. There had been several hundred trained officers in the early 1950s, but the Air Force had inactivated psychological warfare units in 1958. Farmgate nonetheless flew seven missions from December 14, 1961, to February 11, 1962, dropping leaflets and making aerial broadcasts. The initial flights impressed Vietnamese villagers, but speaker quality was marginal. For the messages to be heard from the speakers in the belly of the SC-47, the run over the target needed to be at 600 feet at an airspeed of 100 knots or less. Even then, the message could not exceed 60 seconds. The speakers were later mounted on a rack in the plane's door. This let the aircraft circle an area while a crewman aimed the speakers at a specific spot. Still, the run had to be a dangerously low 500 feet. On February 11th, an SC-47 took off in good weather for a routine leaflet mission south of Dalat. The aircraft crashed for reasons unknown, killing eight Americans, six Air Force and two Army, plus one Vietnamese. This flight was portrayed without success as an attempt to train the lone Vietnamese aboard. Press and congressional reports characterized as fiction the labeling of American missions as solely in the transportation and training of Vietnamese units. 
During the third Secretary of Defense conference in Hawaii in February, Mr. McNamara said he wanted the Vietnamese to take over the psychological warfare operations as soon as they could equip their C-47s with speakers. Admiral Felt, SINCPAC, remarked that, although U.S. personnel engaged in combat from time to time, this was purely incidental to their training missions. He deemed these combat ventures as nothing more than support operations, and said, this should be fixed in the minds of the pilots and other U.S. personnel. Mr. McNamara then ordered action to eliminate references to U.S. activities as combat operations. They are to be spoken of and reported as training or support activities, regardless of the fact that incidental combat may be involved. To inquiries from the press, McNamara's office underscored the U.S. role as limited to advice, logistics, and training. United Press International published the essence of the Farmgate combat story on March 9, 1962, reporting that U.S. airmen for two months had taken a direct part in attacks and that Vietnamese had acted as co-pilots on these flights. According to the official explanation, the story added, this was an emergency measure until the Vietnamese Air Force could be trained. General Anthus, 2nd Advon commander, commented on the story's origin. Due to the joint USAF-VNAF status of Farmgate and the large number of people of both nationalities involved, it is extremely difficult to maintain strict secrecy concerning this operation. This situation bred difficulties regarding the amenities of life in the field for Americans. The first U.S. Air Force arrivals had been hurried to South Vietnam to operate under wartime conditions. They and their successors over several years were bound by peacetime directives and procedures. These strictures were rendered more onerous by Secretary McNamara's decentralizing decision-making at the highest defense levels. Freshly arrived officers and airmen had their earliest brush with Vietnam at an airfield that was not a U.S. Air Force base. At a military or civil Vietnamese base, the Air Force was a tenant because the U.S. government adhered to Article 18 of the Geneva Agreement, forbidding new military installations in South Vietnam. The physical layout of Vietnamese bases was crude. At some, the main roads crossed runways, and at others, the roads sliced through military areas next to the runways. Many fields wanted fences. Not until 1965 were there revetments to shelter aircraft. Tan Son Note, the Saigon Airfield, was an international facility run by the Vietnamese Department of Civil Aviation. The Vietnamese Air Force was a tenant located in the southwest part of the field. The U.S. Air Force was supposed to approach the Department of Civil Aviation through the Vietnamese Air Force. In practice, however, the Americans made contacts with the government civil aviation personnel who could give help and support. The Air Force borrowed one side of a hangar and an officer for the flight line. An arbitrary announcement solved flight control. Any U.S. Air Force aircraft operating at Tan Son Newt would be under 2nd Advon authority and would file its flight plan with base operations. The Army and MAAG cooperated in filing flight plans and juggling parking space. Space was so scarce that the alert pad blocked the flow of planes taxiing for takeoff but the civilian authorities were understanding and helpful. Bien Hoa was about 10 miles from the outskirts of Saigon. This airfield's chief problem, aside from limited runways, was security. The field was garrisoned by a battalion of regular infantry, reinforced by a rifle company, two mortar companies, four armored cars, and 205mm howitzers. A company of rangers provided distant patrols, and a 60-man Vietnamese Air Force police detachment gave interior security. Farmgate formed 12 15-man combat teams, each with at least one Browning automatic rifle, and fused them into base defense plans. The flight line area was the final defensive position. In general, U.S. Air Force personnel coped with the poor facilities, but the supply picture was bleak. Paperwork was sketchy on the stocks pre-positioned in South Vietnam before the Air Force buildup. Most POL came through the port of Saigon and was distributed commercially, a system vulnerable to interruption and blackmail. There were no on-hand reserves of electric generators, portable buildings, bulldozers, crash firefighting equipment, graders, or construction equipment. 
Due to the distance, expendable items trickled in from the United States through Clark. Large items coming by ship took 60 days. The supply problems had a number of offshoots. In late February 1962, for example, 2nd Advon requested the removal of grass and the renovation of fencing and lighting at the transmitter site. There was no action until a grass fire nearly destroyed antennas, cables, and the building itself. The grass was bulldozed the next day, but nothing was done to fix the fences and lights. 13th Air Force refused a March request for $600 to shelter the TSC-15 vans, in which the daytime temperatures of the working areas rose to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. 13th suggested that the workers be moved to tents. Men departing the United States for Vietnam duty in many cases did not know their destination in advance. Unable to bring useful items with them, they often went to the nearest town and bought minor things out of their own pockets. MAAG was generous and shared its meager stocks informally. Scrounging was frequently resorted to. Short supplies, particularly of paper, affected billeting, mess, pay, and mail. In the early days, the cramped quarters were lean-to tents or quickly built Vietnamese-style hutments. Numerous rats and insects made it difficult to sleep. There was no hot water even after U.S. Air Force personnel had been in the country for a year. Offices were crowded, and desks, chairs, and tables were often improvised. After adjusting to their quarters, the new arrivals faced hazards in the mess. Baked goods and ices were sources of infection. Unsanitary practices in local baking firms finally ended local procurement. There was too little refrigeration space under U.S. control, and ice freezers for the field were not to be had. Locally hired employees at snack bars and officers and service clubs were poorly supervised. The outcome was a high sick rate. No wonder that General LeMay, during his Vietnam visit in April 1962, found U.S. Air Force aircraft to be underutilized. Lowered vitality and loss of energy among the men grew out of chronic low-level fevers, dysentery attacks, and too few fresh fruits and vegetables. Medical detachments of the U.S. Army gave local area medical support. Hospitalization became available on April 18, 1962, when its 8th Field Hospital opened at Nha Trang. Pay was erratic. Checks regularly arrived late and at times never. Men could not meet mess bills and travel expenses. Emergency casual payments often resulted in overpayments. Mail service was primitive. Units outside of Saigon received no regular deliveries, and no arrangements existed to buy stamps, cash money orders, or dispatch classified mail. Mail came through Clark on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. The U.S. Army post office in Saigon was closed on Saturdays and Sundays. Recipients of classified or registered mail were notified informally and needed to make their own delivery arrangements. Aggravating these problems were austere maintenance procedures. Second Advon's unconventional organization, adherence in Washington to peacetime practices in procurement and purchase, and the general inability to forecast the number of Americans committed to South Vietnam. Ironically, U.S. Air Force personnel were not in the jungle with guerrillas, but were for the most part in or near metropolitan Saigon, a seaport and industrial center of almost 2 million people in 1962. There, the Air Force engaged in routine tasks and trained the Vietnamese Air Force, which began to expand and fly more operational missions. End of chapter 11. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.